A Mouthful of Air, a poetry podcast with Mark McGuinness. The Wind Hover by Gerard Manley Hopkins To Christ Our Lord I caught this morning morning's minion, Kingdom of Daylight's Dauphin, Dappled dawn-drawn falcon, In his riding of the rolling level Underneath him steady air, And striding high there, how he rung upon the rein of a wimpling wing in his ecstasy. Then off, off, forth on swing, as a skate's heel sweeps smooth on a bow bend. The hurl and gliding rebuffed the big wind. My heart in hiding stirred for a bird, the achieve of, the mastery of the thing. Brute beauty and valour and act, oh, air, pride, plume, here buckle, and the fire that breaks from thee then, a billion times told lovelier, more dangerous, oh, my chevalier. No wonder of it. Sheer plot makes plough down silly and shine, and blue bleak embers, ah, my dear, fall, gall themselves, and gash gold vermilion. <laughs> This poem would be mind-blowing if it was published today. But believe it or not, it was written in 1877. I mean, it's so far ahead of its time, it's hard to imagine how strange it would have sounded to Hopkins' contemporaries deep in the heart of the Victorian era. You know, for reference, round about the same time, Tennyson was finishing his epic poem about King Arthur and his knights, the idols of the king. And then Hopkins comes along with this poem that is radically experimental and modern, that anticipates some of the big technical innovations of 20th century poetry. But at the same time, the poem has deep roots that we can trace all the way back to Anglo-Saxon poetry before the Middle Ages. So it's a poem that combines and embodies old and new. And it is a deeply and explicitly Christian poem that is also, at the same time, extremely sensuous, even sensual. And there's more than a hint of pagan imagery and the warrior ethos of that pre-Christian Anglo-Saxon culture. 
The poem focuses on the miracle of flight, of a small hawk, the wind hover, which is an old name for the common kestrel or Eurasian kestrel, which lives mostly in Europe and Africa and Asia. Here in the UK, it's the only kestrel we have, so these days we just call it a kestrel. But, of course, the older name, the wind hover, is much more evocative than kestrel. And it's called the wind hover because it does just that. It has this amazing ability to hover in the air, flapping its wings really fast. And it looks at the ground as it's hovering for some prey to snaffle. And then, when it sees a suitable target, it swoops down and grabs it. And I've been lucky enough to see kestrels hovering quite a few times while out walking. And it's an amazing sight. You know, it's almost like a cross between a hawk and a hummingbird. And this is the behaviour that Hopkins is describing in the poem. So it's a poem of tension between this tiny creature and the big winds that threaten to dislodge it and sweep it away. But it's maintaining its poise. It's holding the position. It's riding the wind. And it's a glorious sight that for Hopkins is symbolic of the glory of Christ. And he makes this very clear in his dedication to Christ our Lord. By the way, this is another Anglo-Saxon link. I remember reading an old Anglo-Saxon text at college which argued that the sight of a hawk in the sky was proof of the Christian revelation because the hawk is shaped like a cross. And I wasn't entirely convinced by this, but my tutor explained that this was argument by analogy, which has fallen out of fashion somewhat since Anglo-Saxon times. So, there are a lot of tensions in the poem. They are embodied in the figure of this hawk riding the wind and in danger of being thrown off. And also between the traditional and experimental verse forms and between the pagan and the Christian, the sensuous and the spiritual. And we can easily trace these tensions into Hopkins' personality. He was a Catholic priest in the strict Jesuit order. Apparently, this poem was written when he was in North Wales, studying theology at St. Bueno's College. So, Presumably, he saw the wind hover while he was out walking. And as he says, my heart in hiding stirred for a bird. So on the one hand, he was very strict, very disciplined, quite introverted, quiet, restrained personality. But on the other hand, in the poem, I hope you can hear as I read it, it's a poem of explosive, ecstatic joy. And the sight of the hawk spoke to Hopkins of an explicitly Christian revelation. But, you know, he expresses it in such vivid language that whether we're Christians or not, it's a really joyous and exhilarating and exciting poem to read. OK, I think we'd better start by orienting ourselves in exactly what's going on in the poem, because it is a very disorienting poem, and I think deliberately so. I've read it hundreds of times, but you may well have just listened to this for the first time and thought, what on earth is going on here? The words and the images tumble out so fast, and that's by design. Hopkins wants to knock you off your feet and sweep you along like the hawk in the wind. 
So he starts off. I caught this morning morning's minion, kingdom of daylight's dauphin, dappled dawn-drawn falcon. So this morning, he, the speaker of the poem, which I think we can assume is pretty close to Hopkins himself, saw a hawk, a falcon, which he compares to the dauphin. So back in the day, when the French had a monarchy, the dauphin was the title given to the heir to the throne. It was the French equivalent of the Prince of Wales. And of course, any mention of the dauphin, if you are a Shakespeare fan, as Hopkins was, will immediately take you to Henry V and the eve of the Battle of Agincourt. And I have no doubt that Hopkins intended us to think of the Dauphin in this scene boasting about his horse. What a long night is this. I will not change my horse with any that treads but on four pastons. Tja! He bounds from the earth as if his entrails were hairs. Le cheval volant, the pegasus, qui a des narines de feu. When I bestride him, I saw, I am a hawk. He trots the air. So the Dauphin describes his horse as le cheval volant, the flying horse, the pegasus, which of course we know is associated with poetry. And he says it has narines de feu, nostrils of fire. And when he mounts the horse, he compares himself to a hawk riding the air. And so in The Windhover, Hopkins is returning the favour, comparing the hawk riding the air to the dauphin. I caught this morning morning's minion, kingdom of daylight's dauphin, dappled dawn-drawn falcon, in his riding of the rolling level underneath him steady air, and striding high there, how he rung upon the rein of a wimpling wing in his ecstasy. So, in these opening lines of the poem, Hopkins hangs the hawk up for our contemplation, just as it hangs itself in the sky. And he does it in this incredibly rich language. Kingdom of daylight's dauphin, dappled dawn-drawn falcon. You can hear the alliteration, those repeated D sounds. And the combination of the sound patterns and the imagery creates a dappled effect that is very characteristic of Hopkins' poetry. So he hangs the hawk up there, just after that dedication to Christ our Lord, and he compares it to the Dauphin. And in one of his letters, Hopkins says explicitly that he intends the Windhover to be the symbol or analogue of Christ, son of God, the supreme chevalier. Chevalier is obviously knight. And apparently this was a thing in medieval writing, to compare Jesus to a knight in shining armour. And it probably felt natural to Hopkins, given that his order, the Jesuits, was founded by a soldier, St. Ignatius of Loyola. And Jesuits were often referred to as God's soldiers. It also explains why Hopkins wrote another poem about a soldier, a 19th century British red coat, and compared him to Jesus. OK, back to the Windhover. Then off, off, forth on swing, as a skate's heel sweeps smooth on a bow bend, the hurl and gliding rebuffed the big wind. 
My heart in hiding, stirred for a bird, the achieve of, the mastery of the thing. So the wind hover doesn't just hover. He can glide as smoothly as an ice skate. And the hurl and gliding of the bird rebuffed the big wind. And that word rebuffed suggests that, weirdly, the tiny bird is equal to the wind and its buffeting. The Windhofer can rebuff it, resist it, and drive it back. And I do think we are intended to pick up the word buffeting, hiding inside the word rebuffed, suggesting the way that the hawk is buffeted by the wind and somehow manages to repel it. And as he watches the bird riding the wind, Hopkins tells us, My heart in hiding, stirred for a bird, the achieve of, the mastery of the thing. That's a very telling phrase, isn't it? My heart in hiding. It suggests that Hopkins sees himself as quite an introverted, withdrawn, timid person. He's nowhere near as brave and bold as the hawk, let alone Jesus. But he says his heart stirs at the sight, the achieve of, the mastery of the thing. Okay, so that's the first eight lines. And that number should be a clue for us, shouldn't it? Because if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, your poetic radar must be twitching, and you're probably wondering whether this might be a sonnet. Because the basic structure of the Petrarchan sonnet, as Mimi Calvati told us way back in episode three, is eight lines called the octave, where the poet sets the scene or gives us one point of view, followed by six lines, the sestet, which gives us another perspective on the subject. And indeed, this is a sonnet, so we should expect a turn at this point, as the poet shifts or pivots into another way of looking at the subject, which is exactly what we get. Brute beauty and valour and act, oh, air, pride, plume, here, buckle. And the fire that breaks from thee then, a billion times told lovelier, more dangerous, oh, my chevalier. Again, you, you might be forgiven for asking, what exactly is going on here? So let's zoom in for a closer look. The ninth line is basically a summing up of everything that he's described in the octave. Brute beauty, valour, Act, i.e. action, air, pride, and the plume, the feathers of both the hawk and the knight in armour. So he lists these things, and then he says that here they buckle. All of these things buckle. So there's an enormous amount of weight brought to bear on that word, buckle. But what does Hopkins mean by it? I mean, to us, we probably think of the buckle on a shoe. But there are other meanings for that word. And, by the way, scholars have been arguing about the meaning of this word in the Windhofer since it was published. And there are various interpretations that have been put forward. Firstly, our modern meaning of clasp or fasten together could well be relevant here, which would mean that Hopkins is saying that 
all of these things come together and are joined together in the figure of the bird, who we should also remember is Christ. Other, older meanings of buckle are to prepare for battle and to engage with the enemy. The word pops up in this sense several times in Shakespeare's history plays, which we've already seen were in Hopkins' mind as he wrote The Windhover. And a buckler, which also appears in those plays, was a small shield used in hand-to-hand -hand combat. So, the modern shoe buckle and the buckling of medieval warriors have quite different associations, but what they have in common is that they are about bringing things together, whether gently or violently. But there is another meaning of buckle that threatens to override the first two meanings, and that is to break, to crumple, to bend or collapse under pressure, which suggests that, brave and skillful though he is, the kestrel is asking for trouble by riding the wind, because he could easily be broken by the brute force of the wind. Hopkins might also be thinking of another line from Shakespeare in Much Ado About Nothing, when Benedict says to Margaret, I give thee the bucklers, meaning I give in, I surrender. So, which of these three basic meanings of buckle should we choose? Well, I don't see why we shouldn't go for all of them at once. Right from the beginning of the poem, there is clearly some kind of military metaphor going on, so it feels natural to pick up on those military senses of the word buckle and to see the hawk arming itself for battle, clashing with the wind like an opponent and buckling under the blows it receives. So he's fighting the wind, but he's also joining with it, buckling with it in that sense. And if we look at the scene the way a theologian or a philosopher might look at it, we can see that even though the hawk and the wind might appear to be antagonists in conflict with each other, ultimately the two sides can be seen as part of a larger whole. And remember that the wind hover is a symbol of Christ, and it is a commonplace of Christian theology that the crucifixion was a paradoxical moment, the moment of Jesus' greatest suffering and humiliation, when his body was broken, when it buckled, but it was also a glorious moment, the moment of his greatest triumph. And this is pretty well what Hopkins says next. And the fire that breaks from thee then, a billion times told lovelier, more dangerous, oh my chevalier. So immediately after the word buckle, we get and, capital A-N-D, the fire that breaks from thee then. And I think this sentence has got to be deliberately ambiguous and suggestive. It's hard to pin down exactly what he means by this fire, but I think we can feel it, can't we? A fire breaking from the hawk that is lovely and dangerous and evidently holy and glorious. And it's possible that the change of pronouns here, from he and his and him in the octave describing the kestrel, to thee here, means that Hopkins has maybe turned from contemplating the bird to addressing Christ. The poem is addressed 
to Christ our Lord after all. My overall impression here is of language itself buckling under the weight of meaning and the sheer energy of Hopkins's verse as he struggles to express something that is really ineffable, which again is entirely appropriate to his religious subject. And just as we might be scratching our heads and wondering what he's getting at, the poet steps in and tries to steady us with a couple of closing analogies. No wonder of it. Sheer plot makes plough down silly and shine, and blue bleak embers, ah, my dear, fall, gall themselves, and gash gold vermilion. Okay, if you're wondering what cillian is, then so did I. A trip to the dictionary reveals that it's an old-fashioned poetic word for a furrow of earth being turned over by a plough. So he's saying that the plodding of the ploughman is exactly what makes the plough shine. And the second image makes a similar point, that it's precisely when the embers of a fire fall that they Gash gold vermilion, they reveal the glowing heart of the fire within. So, these two arguments by analogy seem to be driving the point home that glory is found in unlikely places, often at the point of greatest danger or greatest endurance or even the moment of falling. Okay, so that's the gist of what's going on in the poem and in the poet's mind, as far as I can decipher it. But it's really the style of this poem that makes it such a startling and unforgettable experience. So, as I said, the poem has the clear division between the octet and the sestet of the classic Petrarchan sonnet. And in one sense, Hopkins keeps very closely to the traditional form. He adheres very strictly, even absurdly strictly, to the traditional rhyme scheme, the rhyming pattern, which in the first eight lines goes A-B-B-A, A-B-B-A. In other words, there are only two rhymes. So you've got two couplets, those B rhymes, nestled inside each quatrain, and enclosing them enveloping them are the A rhymes that appear before and after each couplet. And as I've said before on the podcast, the Petrarchan sonnet was originally written in Italian, and it's much easier to find rhymes in Italian than it is in English. So a lot of English poets tend to fudge this bit or vary it so that they don't have to find two lots of four rhymes. But Hopkins doesn't fudge it. His A rhymes are king, wing, swing, and thing. And his B rhymes are riding, striding, gliding, and hiding. So, not only does he use nice full rhymes for the A and the B rhymes, but these two sets of rhymes even rhyme with each other. They are different because of the stress pattern. King, wing, swing, and thing are masculine rhymes, meaning that they end with a stressed syllable. And riding, striding, gliding, and hiding are all feminine rhymes, which simply means that they end with an unstressed syllable. So Hopkins is basically showing off here. He's taking a demanding rhyme scheme and making it 
even more difficult by making all eight words rhyme together in a row, which is kind of insane. Off the top of my head, I can't think of anyone else who has done this for obvious reasons. And then in the sestet, the last six lines, he again goes for the most difficult of the various traditional options, allowing himself just two rhymes and rhyming here, chevalier and deer, which are relatively ordinary rhymes. But then he ends with a flourish, rhyming billion, cillion and vermilion, which is pretty ostentatious. I mean, firstly, we have to get the dictionary out for cillion. Next, he's rhyming three syllables in all three lines. And just for good measure, he ends with a four-syllable word, vermilion. So, these rhymes are really calling attention to themselves. And I haven't even touched on all the internal rhymes, rhymes buried in the middle of the lines that are scattered throughout the poem. Which means that Hopkins is pushing rhyme about as far as you can before it starts to sound ridiculous. And maybe for some people, it does sound ridiculous. I mean, I wouldn't protest too much if you said, look, come on, this is, this is too much. It's too distracting and I can't take it seriously. So, whether we like it or not, Hopkins sticks extremely strictly to the traditional rhyme pattern. But in another way, he's very free and easy in his use of the sonnet form, and that way is the meter. So... We've encountered quite a few poems on this podcast that are written in a very regular metre, based on set patterns of stressed and unstressed syllables. The most common metre we've seen for sonnets is the good old iambic pentameter, which goes titum, 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 titum. And this was the default metre for sonnets in English up to the 19th century. Hopkins doesn't use iambic pentameter. He uses something that he calls sprung rhythm, where there is a set quantity of stresses per line, but the number of syllables can vary quite dramatically. In order, he says, to capture the natural rhythms of speech, and in particular the expressive rhythms of emotionally charged speech. Now, scholars have spent an awful lot of time and ink debating exactly what Hopkins meant by sprung rhythm and whether it really works in the way he described it. But you will be very pleased to know we are not going to go down that rabbit hole today. The essential point is that he is writing in a mode where stress patterns are governed more by expressive rhythms of speech than by a regular metrical beat. And in one sense, this is very modern, isn't it? It clearly anticipates the free verse revolution of the early 20th century, which led to the situation we have today where most poets don't write in a regular meter. They base the rhythm of the poetry on the rhythms of speech. And this is what Hopkins was doing all the way back in 1877. So in that sense, the Windhover is a very modern poem. But sprung rhythm also harks back to a very old metrical tradition in English, and that is stress meter, where the number of stresses in the line are regular, but the number of syllables between them can vary. 
Hopkins himself said that he wasn't inventing sprung rhythm so much as rediscovering it from folk songs and Shakespeare and other older poets. And we have encountered stress meter on this podcast before, in the anonymous ballad, The Unquiet Grave, back in episode 22. And also, although I didn't talk about the meter in that episode, in the medieval song I read last Christmas, I Sing of a Maiden, in episode 42. Another thing that links the Windhover to this older poetic tradition is Hopkins's use of alliteration which is the repetition of consonant sounds at the start of words. For example, we can easily hear repeated M sounds in the first line of the poem and D sounds in the second line. I caught this morning morning's minion, kingdom of daylight's dauphin, dappled dawn-drawn falcon. Alliteration is a governing sonic principle in a lot of medieval poetry, such as Gawain and the Green Knight, or Piers Plowman. And, as I said, we can trace it all the way back to Anglo-Saxon poetry, to the age of Beowulf. Some poets use alliteration sparingly and subtly, but not Hopkins. (laughs) If we include the Dom of Kingdom... Then in the second line, Hopkins has given us no less than six words in a row beginning with the letter D. Kingdom of daylight's dauphin, dappled dawn-drawn falcon. And this sounds kind of mad, but maybe not so much when we compare it to the opening lines of William Langland's 14th century poem, Piers Plowman. In a summer season, once softer was the sonner, he shop me into shrewders, as ye shepherd were. Which roughly translates as, In a summer season, when soft was the sun, I dressed myself in clothes as if I were a shepherd. So you could say, as Hopkins actually did, that he was reviving an older poetic tradition as much as he was anticipating the free verse of the 20th century. But one thing that separates Hopkins from this older alliterative tradition is that poets generally choose to have either a lot of rhyme in their poem or a lot of alliteration. They generally don't do both at once. (laughs) But as you can hear, Hopkins does. He has absolutely slathered the poem in alliteration as well as assonance, which is basically rhyming on the vowel sounds rather than the consonants. So, for example, the big wind is assonance. And we've seen that he's also laying the rhyme on incredibly thick. So what Hopkins is doing is really idiosyncratic, to put it very mildly. I mean, you have to be a genius to get away with this, which, fortunately, he was. Now, Personally, I have been foolhardy enough to translate Chaucer and to imitate poets like John Donne and William Blake and T.S. Eliot in my own poetry. But I would never dream of trying to imitate Hopkins because I know for a fact I would fall flat on my face. And even Hopkins, you could say, doesn't get away with it entirely. You know, there are, there are moments in this poem when I think he's taking it a bit too far. You know, my heart stirred for a bird. And rhyming cillian and vermilion, 
and how he rung upon the rein of a wimpling wing, are teetering on the brink of ridiculousness. And it would be quite easy to parody Hopkins if we didn't love him so much. Anyway, the main point I'm making here is that Hopkins' use of poetic form, especially his use of sprung rhythm, is a bit like his use of the word buckle, because you can read it or experience it in several different ways, and maybe all of them at once. You could see sprung rhythm as anticipating 20th century free verse. You could see it harking back to the Anglo-Saxon roots of English poetry. Or you could see it as a collision or a joining of the two ways of writing. Hopkins is buckling them together, and maybe they are fighting each other and jangling rather than chiming together. So, Hopkins is not everybody's cup of tea, but he's definitely one of my favourite poets. And this is one of my favourite poems. <laughs> and it's become so popular and anthologized and repeated that it even makes an appearance in an episode of The Simpsons. And believe it or not, The Simpsons character actually does a pretty good reading of the poem. If I can find a legal version on YouTube, I will link to it in the show notes for your enjoyment. And because this is one of my favourite poems, I've known from the start that I wanted to do it on the podcast. And I must admit, I've been working myself up to it, because I'd say it's probably the most challenging poem to read out of all the poems that I've recorded so far. <laughs> Even that Shakespeare speech where I, I was yelling so loud that my wife got quite alarmed at the other end of the house. And... What I would say from my experience of reading it out loud is that to appreciate it, you really need to let go and go with it. To get caught up in the gusts and the cross-currents of Hopkins's rhythms and sound patterns, just as the hawk is buffeted to and fro by the wind. And Hopkins is pretty self-deprecating. He describes himself as the guy on the ground with his heart in hiding. But actually... He's the one who wrote the poem. He's the one who gave us this glorious explosion of brute beauty and valour. And the poem affects me the way the hawk affected Hopkins. Each time I read it, I'm left staring in wonder at the achieve of, the mastery of the thing. The Wind Hover by Gerard Manley Hopkins To Christ Our Lord I caught this morning morning's minion, Kingdom of Daylight's Dauphin, Dappled dawn-drawn falcon, In his riding of the rolling level Underneath him steady air, And striding high there, how he rung upon the rein of a wimpling wing in his ecstasy. Then off, off, forth on swing, as a skate's heel sweeps smooth on a bow bend. The hurl and gliding rebuffed the big wind. My heart in hiding stirred for a bird, the achieve of, the mastery of the thing. 
Brute beauty and valour and act. Oh, air, pride, plume, here buckle. And the fire that breaks from thee then, a billion times told lovelier, more dangerous, oh, my chevalier. No wonder of it. Sheer plot makes plough down silly and shine, and blue bleak embers, ah, my dear, fall, gall themselves, and gash gold vermilion. Gerard Manley Hopkins was a poet and Catholic priest who was born in 1844 and died in 1889. He converted to Catholicism at a time when anti-Catholic sentiment was still strong in England and his conversion led to his estrangement from his family and several friends. He was a man of contradictions. He often felt a tension between his poetry and his religious vocation so that when he entered the Jesuit order, he burned his poems, and he only published a handful of them during his lifetime. He suffered periods of depression throughout his life, but his poems express moods of extreme joy as well as despair. On his deathbed, his last words are recorded as, I am so happy, I am so happy, I loved my life. In 1918, 30 years after Hopkins' death, his friend Robert Bridges published the first collected edition of his poems, and he is now regarded as one of the major poets of the 19th century. A Mouthful of Air is a poetry podcast hosted by Mark McGuinness. New episodes are released every other Tuesday. If you enjoy the show and you'd like to help me reach more poetry lovers, you can do this by telling a friend about it or by taking a few seconds to leave a rating or even a brief review on Apple Podcasts. If you would like a full transcript of Every episode sent to you via email, including the poem text, you can sign up for this at amouthfulofair.fm slash subscribe. If you'd like to follow the show on social media, you can find all the links, as well as a full episode archive, at amouthfulofair.fm. The music and soundscapes for the show are created by Javier Whaler. Sound production is by Breaking Waves and visual identity by Irene Hoffman. A Mouthful of Air is produced by the 21st Century Creative with support from Arts Council England via a National Lottery Project grant. Thank you for listening. I'll be back soon with another poem.